Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Buddy. Just a quick shout out to The Wreck for hosting the podcast each week, The Wreck, way more than a bowling alley. We drop a new podcast every Friday morning with a new story that will impact someone. We hope that someone is you. I just want to say thank you again to all the listeners each week who take the time to hear the stories of our guests. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, give us a review, and share this podcast with your friends, family, and on your favorite social media platform. We want to get these messages out to the people and to impact the world one testimony at a time. This morning, I'm excited and grateful to introduce you to my new guest and friend, Becca Brisbane. Welcome, Becca. Hello. Thank you for having me, buddy. Well, thanks for being here. It's uh, it's good to meet you. Uh, I've I've heard your name a little bit from <laughs> a guy named Matt Miller. Does that sound about right? Yes, yes. Okay. I love I love Matthew Miller so much. He's a dear friend. Yeah, yeah. Good good man. And so he talked highly of you. And I, you have a story. And I can't wait to hear the story. <laughs> let me let me do just a quick intro of you, and then we'll dive into the story. Sounds good. Okay. So you gave me a few things to to talk about, but I want to just uh, a couple things before that is number one, you're married to a guy named Travis. Yes, you guys been married for what four years? Yeah, we got married uh, August third, two thousand nineteen. Okay, so you guys just recently had your fourth anniversary. Yes, we did. Congrats! It was super fun. That's pretty cool. So you guys were been together for a long time. The history that you have is interesting. So. Uh, you, so you were uh, in the shelters and streets of Salem as a homeless youth and devoted into supporting that community in every way you can. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you were just recently accepted into Leadership Salem for McLaren Leadership Foundation. You've made over a million buttons <laughs> since 1991. <laughs> yes. Starting with the Boys and Girls Club on Summer Street. And that's really a lot of your story is buttons. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. So we'll talk deeply about buttons. You're currently raising, act, uh, actively raising funds for Radness Ensues, a button buddy collective on GoFundMe, Michelle Ashley Custom Cakes and Mint Children's Boutique are also hosting a fundraiser for it. Yeah, that's going to be on September 9th. Okay. And yeah. we're going to talk about that. Yeah. So it is a community hub with buttons at the core to support children and their families. So a lot of what I hear you really, you're... Your passion is the youth. Yes. And we're going to talk into the why, because I want to hear the why behind that. I'm sure there's a deeper story. Uh, you use your buttons as a catalyst for connection, and it's my anti-drug. <laughs> Prior to that, it was drugs, right? Yeah. On the street. Yeah. And you've been in active recovery from alcohol for over 11 years. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. You love dinosaurs. <laughs> I do. Tell me about your dinosaurs that you love. I absolutely love pterodactyls and triceratops are my favorite. Gotcha. Why? I well, so my favorite number is three, and okay. so I was obsessed with triceratops because they have three horns. Okay. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And then um, I'm pretty sure because I used to watch Pee Wee Herman as a little kid, yeah. and they had Terry the pterodactyl. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that's probably what planted the seed for okay. for loving pterodactyls. Got it. Got it. You are the co-founder of an upcoming Punks in the Park event on September 16th. What is uh, what is Punks in the Park? What exactly is that? So Punks in the Park is a um, like a resource event meets Battle of the Bands. So um, last year, um, myself and three others got together and 
decided that we wanted to do something for the youth. And um, so I come from the homeless population okay. and um, Haley, our other, one of our other co-founders um, was also a homeless youth. And our whole goal is to be the adults that we needed when we were young. Mm. So we were like, you know, Haley approached me and she's like, Hey, I want to, I want to do something with, you know, the youth and, I want to like maybe flip some hamburgers and hot dogs and pass out some resources, maybe play some guitars. And, you know, I, I think that you'd be a great person to help me, you know, put that together. And I said, well, it's funny you mentioned it. I actually have some experience doing this um, back before I got sober. And I would love, you know, kind of like redemption yeah. um, to, to get involved. You know, I said, I'm in. And so in five weeks, we raised over $50,000 and threw the largest youth resource event in our area. And we had, we served over 300 youth. Um, that means they got free clothes, free food, toys, and resources. And we had five local bands and our community really showed up. We also did it at the skate park um, in Salem, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of the park that nobody wants to look mm -hmm. at. And, you know, Haley said, well, you know, when people would question, you know, like, you guys want to do that at the skate park? She's like, well, we all were a skate park at once in our lives, weren't we? You know? And so... But we had over a thousand members of our community show up consistently. We had over 32 resources. Um, and this year we're doing it again. And it's, it's really cool because our community really stepped up to the plate. I think without our, well, not think, I know without our community, it would not have been what it has become. And it's really just a great opportunity for our community to come together on behalf of our youth and also to kind of break down the stereotype about, you know, what punk actually is. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, people see these kids with colored hair and piercings and all this yeah. stuff. And in reality, we're all just people. Yep. And that demographic is severely underserved and they just need love and acceptance as they are. And so our goal is to meet the youth where they are at mm. and um, just be there for them and help raise their voices so that, you know, how are you going to serve something that you don't understand? So we're here to help bridge that gap. Is this the second annual? Is that what you're saying? So yes. you did the first one last in 2022. Mm -hmm. Um Okay. So the second, but last year you raised 50 grand mm -hmm. to do that. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's dive into the story because I want to, you are where you're at, but there's a story behind that. So walk us through kind of where were you born? I know that you lived on the streets. Mm -hmm. We want to hear that story. Okay. Not, I'm, nobody, no kid wants to live on the street. I'm pretty sure. No. But there's certain things that led to that. So Talk to us about that. What 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 caused that? So I was born in Tacoma, Washington in 1983, and my mother was 13 at the time that I was born. Yeah. So um, my my jaw just opened wide, but wow, it happens. Yes, it, it does happen. Yeah. Um, so my mother, um, you know, like I love her dearly. Um, I'm I'm really grateful for for her and having her you know in my life um i only lived with her until i was about six years old and it was kind of off and on um due to the family that i come from you know it it's weird i'm an i i am an anomaly like i shouldn't statistically i shouldn't be the person that i am if you were to look at 
the background of my family and, and where I come from. And so, um, you know, my mother was often, you know, couch surfing and in shelters and whatnot. And, you know, I'm her oldest, so I was with her hmm. through that. Um, we lived at the YWCA. We lived at various church basements, various shelters. We lived at the SOS shelter, which I think is, is kind of, um, serendipitous at this point because where the SOS, the SOS shelter was is now where Rock is, uh, Recovery Outreach Community Center, which I also serve on the board of now. So mm. it's funny because, uh, Christina's office, the executive d- director of Rock, um, that was my bedroom. Wow. <laughs> so it was weird when I first went to Rock and like walked in the room because I was like, oh my God, like I hadn't been there since I was six years old. And, I walked in and I was kind of taken back. She's like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I died in this room. She's like, what? I was like, I died in this room. You know, like it was, you know, cause I, I, I had um, health complications when I was young um, due with, with breathing and stuff like that. And sometimes I would pass out and just check out. And um, <laughs> so that's kind of a weird, it, it was, it was very weird, you know, like coming home Um because I hadn't lived in Salem for 20 years when we moved back. Okay, where'd you move to? Um, I moved to Tacoma when I turned oh. 18. So, um, so, but yeah, so I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead. So I was born in Tacoma, but I was raised in Salem. So I think I was maybe two years old when we moved to Salem originally. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, when I say we, that's my grandmother, my grandfather, my mom, my Uncle Mike, and uh, myself. So um, I grew up in Salem. I went to all my grade schools, middle school, high school, and was all here in Salem. Like, um, And we just kind of hopped around a lot. There was a lot of, you know, I, I don't know, I guess how to put it, but like there was never any stability. Um, you know, I don't remember living anywhere for more than six months until I was 10 years old. So... Um, and a lot of that, you know, like I lived in a car with my mom and her boyfriend and my sibling. Um, for a time, we got kicked out of the shelter for a little bit. And then like we lived in, there's like this hotel off Portland Road that we lived in for a little bit. And so, you know, it was just very, you know, I didn't really realize it. And there's a lot of things I didn't, wasn't privy to until I got older. But for the most part, you know, like you just kind of like, this is life, this mm-hmm. Um, instability, this chaos, this kind of thing, you're just along for the ride. Cause you know, I was, you know, six years old when I no longer live with my mother. And, um, so everything was just very, you know, like, oh, we're living here now, or we're living here now. Or, you know, I remember, um, at one period after the shelter, we lived in a house with another family who also had lived at the shelter and they had three kids. And so, and I think there was maybe, three bedrooms, four bedrooms in that house. So we were all kind of crammed in. So there was like myself, their daughter, and I think they had two or three, two or three sons. And then the mother and father, and then there was my mom and her boyfriend. And we all lived in this house together. Mm. Um, And that was very chaotic, you know, um, with a lot of abuse, um, both verbal and physical and emotional. And so there's just a lot of of that, you know, my, my mind has actually blocked out a lot of things over the years, but I've been through a lot of like deep trauma therapy, especially in the last three years since, since COVID. Mm. Um, I guess it just had the kind of opportunity without working to dive in. So, um, I've done a lot of like EMDR therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and, um, 
just really trying to find or not trying to find, I've successfully found the roots of my trauma mm-hmm. and I've just been working to eradicate it as much as possible and turn it into a catalyst for good. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of learn from it, understand it and move forward so that I know actually why I am the way I am and, um, you know, kind of how to move through it and learn how to live with it. Has it been helpful to go through that therapy just to... Oh, absolutely. Without it, I can imagine how hard that would be. Well, the thing is, too, is, you know, um, if you don't understand where you come from, you know, a lot of times, you know, people are like, well, you know, I do this, but I don't know why, you know. If you can figure out the why, um, you can fix it. Yeah. If you figure out the why, you can... If you can't fix it, you can navigate with it. Like, I actually... I have so much trauma and like, like I actively live with, um, PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I have anxiety and, um, so I have anxiety disorder and I also have a uh, moderate to mild depressive disorder and learning about these things and understanding like how to navigate it is the only reason why I can function. So, um, I actually have my therapist, um, because my husband and I have a couples counselor and then I also have my own solo therapist and our couples counselor is always telling us like, wow, you two are just amazing to me. And he's like, do you realize like I have patients who haven't even experienced a fraction of the trauma that you've been through and they can't function, you know? And I know this because they're in my office all the time. Mm -hmm. And he goes, the fact that you are doing what you're doing and you're moving the way that you're moving through it and with it, he goes, it's just amazing to me. And he's been in practice for like over 30 years. Wow. So. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you born in Tacoma, moved to Salem. Mm -hmm. At what point in time did you end up on the street? What, what does that look like? Were you in high school? So after high school, like I said, you know, like living with my mom, um, in and out of shelters, in and out of unstable living situations. So it started when I was little. Yeah. You know, so there were, it, it's kind of, it comes in like little clips mm-hmm. of memory because there's a lot that's missing. But like I have a lot of really fond memories of like playing with other kids mm-hmm. in the shelters, like at the YWCA. Um, one of my favorite memories, like an SOS shelter, is when we first got there, we all the kids would get a bag of marbles. So I actually really love marbles, like mm-hmm. to just sit on the floor and play marbles. Um, because it was just cool having that little that little thing of connection. And so the kids would all get together and we play marbles together. Yeah. Um, so I do have memories of like being in the car and bundled up. My sibling would be beside me in their car seat and, you know, just like bundled up in blankets. And um, so like that, I think that was right before we stopped living with my mom. Um, because like my grandma's like, you know, she can't, you know, you can't live like this. Like the kids need something else. But my mom wasn't able to get quite on her feet yet. And so, um, but like, I remember my mom, like we would park behind the McDonald's and my mom and her boyfriend would go digging through the McDonald's trash bin. And I remember one night, like we, um, she was only able to get like a couple of cheeseburgers. And, um, at the time my sibling was still on formula, you know, um, I think they were almost 18 months old at the time. Mm. And, uh, like. I ate the cheeseburger and I remember it was cold, you know, and my mom waited and 
she had like one more like cheeseburger that she was able to find that wasn't like gross or, you know, had like stuff on it. And, um, you know, my mom would, she waited and I was like, well, I'm, I'm still hungry. Is there more food? And she was like, yeah. And she gave me her cheeseburger. And then like, we had like a, an officer had knocked on the window and there was like a confrontation there. And at the time I didn't really understand what was going on, but Mm -hmm. like a lot of times my mom would get mistaken for a prostitute, which she was not. Um, a lot of that because compared to my mother, my sibling and I are very light skinned. My mother's half black. And so, um, there was a lot of kind of harassment and stuff like that. Like, um, a lot of times she'd be confronted thinking that she had kidnapped us and like all these different things. And, So, but again, like I was really young, so I didn't understand, you know, what was going on. I just know that that was kind of like normal, you know, like there's just these situations where all I knew was like mom's stressed out or mom's not eating, but I am, you know, and, you know, a lot of times you'd also, you know, like I remember living for, I think it was the, I don't know if it was Salvation Army or Union Gospel Mission, but it was like a gym with cots, like all over, kind of spread out. And that was before they started like segregating um, things. So I remember one night we were at the shelter and there was like all these cots and people, like some people were like coughing and whatnot. And it weren't, I wasn't allowed to sleep in the cot with my mom. And my mom was there with my sibling and she was able to hold, you know, my sibling, but I couldn't sleep in the cot with her cause there wasn't room and just being really scared. Um, just because there was like so many people and there was like things weren't, you know, there just wasn't as much regulation in the eighties, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there'd just be random strangers everywhere and everybody was kind of in the same, you know, like this gym space. And so it was just kind of terrifying, but I don't, I don't know like at what point we wound up being on the streets. And then when I, you know, when I got older, I was 15. Like I'd been living with my grandmother for some time. That's your mom's mom. Yeah. And um, so when I was 15 is when I started like leaving home a lot and couch surfing. And um, sometimes I would go with friends and, you know, I remember I stayed behind a dumpster um, we use cardboard to stay warm up in Portland um, for a night. And I just kind of just drifted. And I've always kind of been very, always just been kind of very accepting of my situation um, and just making the best of it. So I wasn't like, oh, this is a really bad situation. Instead, it was like, okay, this is what I'm doing tonight, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, um, yeah, I don't really know like what the defining point was. It's just I kind of grew up in this world. So things seem natural and kind of like, this is just what it is. I mean, it's actually really interesting too, because like, you know, I opened up my button shop um, after, you know, operating out of the home for 10 years, I opened it um, here in commercial street in Salem in 2021. And there was actually a point there where my husband and I had separated and, um, after we moved down here and for the first 10 months, as I was putting my shop together, I didn't realize that I was actually living out of my truck and couch surfing again. And I just remember talking to a friend one time. I was like, I'm really frustrated. Like everything's like, I just keep like, I've got a toothbrush at my grandma's. I've got a toothbrush at Jess's. I've got a toothbrush here. And I just feel like I'm living out of my truck because I am. Mm -hmm. And it was like this 
thing, like, because I'm so used to just adapting to whatever and making the most of it that I was actually homeless the first 10 months, you know, like my husband and I were living in an RV without the only amenity we had was electricity and internet parked in front of his dad's house in Jefferson. And um, we had sold our home. I mean, there, there's a lot here. We, we had sold our home and moved back to, to Oregon. And we're living in this trailer that we were working on. But, you know, at any time, if the city of Jefferson had been like, you guys need to move, we wouldn't have had anywhere to go. We wouldn't have anywhere to take the trailer to. We were using the shower and facilities in his dad's house. And I didn't even realize, like, my husband was really struggling because he was having, like, trauma triggers from from being that, you know, because we both grew up in very chaotic and homeless environments. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we our stories are very similar. And so, like, he was really struggling. And I didn't realize it because I'm always like, hey, just make the most of it. You know, I have, like, a, a way of, I guess, putting it's on It's almost rose. normal for you in a way. Yeah. And I'll put on, like, rose-colored glasses and just be like, oh, this is great. I can I can work with this, you know, and I'll just keep moving forward. And, you know, he was kind of spiraling in his own depression of, like, I never wanted to be back here again. And I just was Where'd you guys move from? You guys- we were living in Carbonado. Washington is in the foothills of Mount Rainier. Okay. Um, so we had a, we had a home that I had bought there um, back in 2016, yeah. and we sold it in uh, July 27th, 2021 is when we moved down here. Okay. And I think it, it closed the deal closed in like August. Yeah. Um, but we originally moved down here to um, so I could take care of my grandparents. Uh, my grandfather had had like a mini stroke and was struggling. So I became a care provider yeah. for them. And then um, we were going to buy property in uh, near Sayo. Mm -hmm. And um, we were going to build a dream home, but things kind of um, crashed just due to the situation that we were in and a lot of conflict um, that we did not understand how to resolve, which is why we're actually in couples counseling right now. But yeah. We, we moved back in together in February of this year. Okay. So take me back a little bit. Um, where? Oh, so which high school, you, you said you grew up going to schools here in, mm -hmm. in Salem. What what high school did you graduate from? I did not. Um, so That's okay. I went to McNary. Okay. I dropped out on sophomore year. Okay. And then I went to Job Corps. Um, so in Job Corps, I went and I got my diploma and then there was a program. So... Um, that like if you got your GED and you did a senior project, you could actually graduate with your diploma and your GED. So uh, before my 17th birthday, I had both my GED and my diploma through Job Corps. And then I had actually um, was able, when my senior class went to prom, I spoke to Mr. Bolander, who was the, the principal at the time, and he allowed me to go to senior prom. So I actually did go to get get to go to senior prom with my senior class. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, because I you know I was like, hey, I, I finished. You know, I just finished early. You know, I graduated in two thousand, and my class graduated in two thousand one. Okay. Um. So, but yeah, I went to McNary. Got it. Okay. So then, how did you meet your husband? So we were street kids together. Um. So I, you know, to avoid my home life situation, I would, I just started kind of hanging out downtown. Mm -hmm. I, it started, I originally, like when I was 12, I would start riding my bicycle to the library and, or taking the bus. And so I'd go to like riding classes and stuff that were available at the library. And so that kind of got me familiar with the bus system and whatnot. And then when I was, I think about 14, I started going, um, 
you know, catching the bus after school and going downtown with friends and hanging out at um, Home Youth Services, um, which was the Home Youth and Resource Center um, in the 90s, Mm -hmm. and kind of hanging out there. And from there, I'd met um, my friend Cole and Lee and Rachel and some other some other friends of mine. And um, through some of my friends at school, um, I kind of started skipping class and then would go downtown and connect with these other youth and stuff downtown. And Travis was one of the, I guess, punk rock kids. We used to hang out on the benches over in Liberty Plaza. They removed them um, in the early 2000s, but just used to kind of congregate down there and then would go hang out. And uh, that's originally where we met, where we actually met, um, like officially met, because like I'd seen him and he had seen me um, through mutual friends, but we actually collided in a mosh pit (laughs) at the Kaiser Lions Hall um, during a punk rock show when I was, I think, 15. But like we had, it's very fuzzy because I was also starting to get very active in uh, my alcoholism at the mm-hmm. time, so memories kind of fuzzy and dates don't always click or connect. But um, the night that we actually officially met, um, we had collided in the mosh pit. He used to have a, a little spike in the front of his beanie, and we collided, and he actually knocked me out and then was, like, mortified because he's like, oh, my God, I just knocked out this girl, you know. And so he picked me up, and he he took me to the bathroom and, like, cleaned off the blood off my head and that's when we actually met and developed a friendship. And then we went back out and continued to dance in the music. And um, we've been friends ever since. Do you, rem- uh, do you remember when alcohol first played uh, a part in your life? Like, do you remember that first drink you took, where you were at, and uh, what triggered that to continue? I'm just curious. So I grew up in it. So I originally, I thought that I started drinking at 12. That was my original thought, you know, because when I got sober at 29 and, you know, when I I went to see my mom when I first got sober and kind of started kind of picking up the pieces of my life and, you know, stopped blaming her for my life and things. And, um, you know, my mom was just curious and she's like, well, you know, I'm really glad that you're sober, but like, you know, what happened? I said, well, mom, I've been drinking since I was 12. Like, I'm just tired. I'm really tired. I, I think it's it's time to do something more with my life. And she got this really guilty look on her face. And she goes, baby girl, you've been drinking since you were three. Wow. That's um, heavy. Like I said, my mom had me at 13. My uncle uh, was 14. And uh, when he was younger, he was a heroin addict. Um. If you really start to peel back the layers, which is what happened when I got sober, I started digging into my family system and going, you know, what is going on? Why? Why am I like this? Why do I feel this way? So, you know, my grandmother grew up in Hesperia, California, and um, she came from a family, as she describes, on the wrong side of the tracks. So a very poor family in Hesperia where you have a lot of um, alcoholism, addiction, um very traumatic child experiences, um, including molestations and, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of incest, a lot of just not healthy upbringing. Um, You know, they left California um, in a way to get away from that. Um, But my grandma was actively like hung out with a lot of biker clubs and just partied a lot. And she had four children from four different men. 
Um, she was also a prostitute. Um, so, you know, all of this, when you, you start to kind of peel back and understand things, like nobody had the tools. You know, she just found out herself, you know, that her mother was also a prostitute. You know, like this is something that's just developed in the last like five, ten years that she's, you know, found this out from talking with her sisters. And so these things, you know, start to unravel. And so um, my uncle partied a lot. My mom partied a lot when I was a kid. And when you have these situations, you know, and who's watching the baby, you know? So my uncle was my buddy, you know, he was, he was one of the first drummers for Queensryche before Queensryche was Queensryche. Um, he was always in bands and doing music and things. And a lot of times if my grandparents were gone, he would throw parties, you know, and you know, what's the baby doing? Baby's going around drinking up, you know, picking up cans and bottles and, and drinking. And so, um, I can remember every holiday having alcohol, you know, whether it be wine or, or beer, you know, my uncle always thought it was funny to get the baby drunk. But if you figure, you know, 14, 15, 16, without any proper tools, you know, and I'm not saying it's an excuse for the behavior, but if you don't know any better and this is the world you come from, um, it's acceptable behavior, you know? And so I can always remember, um, you know, like playing Tetris with my uncle and having a beer, you know? And, um, when I was 21, I remember I came back home to visit and we were sitting at the table and we matched beer for beer. Um, and I remember his girlfriend was like, Mike, what's going on? You know, like, and he's like, you know, be quiet. You know, he didn't say it like that. It was not, you know, but he's, he's like, she's a grown adult. She can do what she wants, you know? And, um, so I just, I, that was my world. Like I come from an alcoholic family um, riddled with abuse, you know, people, you know, I, I, I do a lot of different things. Like I'm also, um, I'm a speaker for rain, rain speakers bureau, which is the rape abuse incest national network. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that since 2014. So I, um, I speak on panels and I talk with students and I participate in studies and share my story in that way too for, you know, so, but anytime people ask me to speak, I go, well, here's the wheel of trauma through a dart, you know, what do you want me to talk about? You know, because I probably have something that touches on whatever subject you're looking for. Um, but yeah, I mean, I honestly, I, I don't know when, you know, alcohol was first introduced because I was, I was born into it. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, let's talk about uh, a few things here. So did drugs, I'll just ask you a few questions, but did drugs ever enter your life or was it, was it just alcohol? I know that you toured with a band or doing music. Yes. And we'll maybe touch on that just for a moment. And then you started making buttons at age nine. Eight. Eight. Yeah. And you've been doing buttons ever since. What does that mean to you and why? Okay. So what was that first question? Yeah, the first question <laughs> is, did, did drugs ever enter your life or was it just purely alcohol? Yeah. So um, I... So like I said, you know, I started couch surfing and stuff at 15, but I didn't move all of my stuff out of my grandmother's house until I was 17. And so her whole thing was like, if you're under my house, you live by my rules, no drugs, no drugs, no drugs. And so I was very like, 
I don't want to do drugs. I don't want to do drugs. So I waited until I was 17, and that was the first time I smoked marijuana. And my uncle, because my uncle had always struggled with addiction, and I, I will say, like, he passed away in 2006 to suicide, um, which had a very profound impact on me and also was what helped get me sober. But he would be in and out of rehabs and different things. And one of the things that he always kind of grilled into me was like, don't you ever touch heroin. Don't you ever don't do this. You know, do not do intravenous drugs. And I never did. But when I was, you know, my drug of choice is alcohol. Um, but I did do other things like, you know, I, um, what is it? Um, you know, LSD, mushrooms, cocaine, um, meth, um, trying to think of just kind of a, a plethora of things that I did, I guess, dabble with. Um, when I was sober, you know, if someone offered me drugs, I'm like, no, you know, but once I had alcohol in me, then if something was on the table, I'd be like, okay. And um, I smoked heroin, but I never shot heroin. And at the time when I first tried cocaine, heroin and cocaine were on the table. But my uncle, you know, had that voice drilling in my head, like, don't touch heroin, don't touch heroin, don't touch heroin. And so I um, I chose cocaine because nobody engrilled in me, don't do cocaine, don't do cocaine. Um, and even when I had smoked heroin, I was told it was opium, so I didn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, I was like, I've never touched heroin, you know, and I found out later on that after talking to some of my friends who were heroin addicts, you know, the effects of what I experienced was like, Becca, that wasn't opium, that was heroin. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, so it was kind of very naive um, a lot of times, but um, I wouldn't say that I was like an active drug user because it wasn't my go-to. And like, like I've only done meth like a few times, I never liked it. And everything that I would try was always while I was under the influence of alcohol. And then, you know, I sober up and whatever happened, you know, like the little bits and pieces that I would have in my memory, I just remember waking up in the morning feeling horrible, my body feeling like garbage, my head throbbing. And as people would give me pieces of my behavior from the night before, I would just absolutely hate myself and just be mortified of my behavior. And um, so it, uh, alcohol was always my drug of choice, but yes, I did. You know, I did participate in a lot of different drugs and some of them I don't even know, you know, what I took. Hmm. You know, sometimes like I remember I went to a club one time and met up with these strangers. You know, I, I met this girl on, on Craigslist and she invited me to um, to go out to this show and we all met up at this bar with all their friends and it was like a like a mixed bag where we all just put our hands out and this person would place, you know, it was a colorful variety of drugs. I have no idea what I took and would just take them all, add the booze, and then we went to the show. Hmm. And so, like, I don't even know if they're uppers, downers, or what. So there's a lot of things, like, I have no idea what I put into my body. And um, I'm just really grateful, like, really grateful that um, things didn't get worse than they were. Like, I've been in a lot of bad situations. Um, But just grateful to have that soundness of mind and that clarity today to know exactly what I'm putting into my body and know exactly what my behavior is. Like, I absolutely love sobriety. Like, it is the life that I've been given that, you know, because of being sober, Mm -hmm. it's so much better than being numb and not knowing what happened. So, um, 
But yeah, like drugs were definitely a part of my journey, yeah. unfortunately. So walk us just through the story of your music and then we'll get onto buttons and kind of your ministry where you're at today. Okay. Well, um, like I said, my uncle was, was the first drummer for Queensryche before Queensryche was Queensryche. And so, um, my, some of my earliest memories are like sitting in his lap, beating on drums and, um, he could play bass, he could play guitar, he could sing. And he was always just pumping me full of music all the time. And so, um, I just always had a taste for it. And then, um, when I was in Swiggle Elementary in fourth grade, they had a music demo and they had played, um, this lady came and she played like all these different instruments and I fell in love with the bass, like the, the orchestral bass. And I was, so I used to play three quarter size in grade school and middle school. And I just thought the bass was the coolest thing. And I got my first electric bass when I was 16 for my 16th birthday. And like I had my first bands, um, we actually played, did we play, I think we played in the McNary cafeteria, but I, I don't remember if, yeah, it's, it's, my brain is a little, okay. like, forgive me sometimes there's like a lot of bits and pieces, but I'm pretty sure my band played in like, not the cafeteria, but the kind of forum thing at the front, they had like a live music thing. And, um, but so it's like 14 or 15 when I had my first band, but I just always played music. Um, so then that turned into when I, um, I think I was 20, early twenties when I started like playing actively in bands and started kind of going around and, and touring a little bit. And then, um, I, there was a point there where I was like, I'm, I'm going to get my passport. You know, I'm just going to get my passport. And my ex-husband was like, you don't have anywhere to go. Like, why would you get a passport? And I was like, because you never know. So like, I like threw a hundred bucks on the counter. I bought my passport. And I was like, five years, I'm going to Europe. Well, I met, um, I was like two years after, or about a year after I got sober. And I was, I went to go see Bob Wayne in Seattle and he goes, wait a minute. He goes, you've been doing some of this before, you know, like you work with bands and you're in bands. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, would you want to watch, you know, do my merch for me tonight? And you and your husband can get into the show for free. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, cool, cool. And then he's like, so, you know, how are you on, on partying? I said, actually, I've been sober for almost a year. And he goes, okay. You know, and he's kind of going through this checklist. He goes, do you have your passport? I was like, I do. And he goes, you want to go to Europe with me? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and at the time I was touring with another band. And, you know, I had some, some show commitments and he called me and he's like, Hey, do you want to come to Europe? And I'm like, actually I can't, I've got, you know, and he's like, but it's Europe. I said, but I have commitments, you know? And he goes, it'll, okay, okay. It'll work. It'll work. And the next year, you know, I wound up going with him for, for two months, um, into Europe. And then the next year was three months in Europe and three months in the U S and then I was like booking shows for him in the U S and doing a lot of that. So yeah, in 2014, I went to 33 countries. No kidding. <laughs> what a joy. Yeah. And then, you know, I also worked, um, I worked for another band, um, and, you know, back when I was still drinking and we were on the Mayhem Fest tour in 2011, the Rockstar Mayhem Fest. And so I, I worked that and traveled all over the state. So I've done like four or five cross country tours mm. with various acts. And then, you know, I've done, Cross, cross, hop the pond, as you say. Um, yeah. And I've gone to Europe twice with Bob Wayne. 
Would you say when you compare music and, and your button business and which one's your passion? Oh, buttons for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was really hard, you know, cause as the first two years of sobriety, especially when you grow up just pretty much wrecked constantly. And you, if you figure from the time I was 12 until 29, you know, and it got worse and worse, you know, um, as you know, you get, you fall deeper in that hole. Um, there's a lot to sort through. So I have like the family stuff to sort through. I have all these different things to kind of decipher as I'm learning, really getting to know myself. Cause you know, they say that, um, development kind of stops, you know, when you really start being active in your addiction. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of skills and things you have to learn to just connect with others and how to function as a human being. Yeah. And, um, so, as I was learning how to get to know myself and, you know, digging in my family systems and stuff, like I had started making buttons um, professionally in 2011. Like I've been making them since I was eight. And that was, you know, Boys and Girls Club had a little button press that I would gravitate to. And I would ask the, the volunteers, like, can we make buttons today? You know, and there'd be festivals that I would go to and they'd have little button makers. Like there was the Almsville Corn Festival I went to when I was like 10 or 11. And they had a little button station and I was like, oh, buttons, you know, and so it always just kind of gravitate to these. Well, I had started my button business in 2011 and I would, you know, my guitarist would set up the buttons and I would make them and I'd be like, hey, you know, I'd see these bands that we were playing with and I'd be like, hey, we're going to be playing with you guys in a couple of weeks. Do you guys need some buttons? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. So I'd hurry up and make them on the road and then sell them when we got to the location. And so that's kind of where it started was on the road. Well, when I got sober, I started focusing more on buttons. And so when I was on a break from tour with working with Bob, I would like put all this work and stuff into buttons and get going and start gaining momentum. And then Bob would call me and be like, Hey, we're leaving now. And I'm like, great. You know, and I have all this work and stuff. And I'm like, okay, I've got to put this on hold. Well, after, so there, there was a lot of different things, but like, you know, I came home from Europe to a divorce um, from my first marriage, which wound up being a blessing in disguise yeah. um, because that marriage was very codependent and I wasn't the only addict in the relationship. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm actually really grateful that that happened. Um, and it kind of made me stop and reassess and rethink my life. You know, so I joined the union. So I'm, I'm actually a, a journeyman laborer in uh, 242 out of Des Moines, Washington. Hmm. I still pay my dues because you never know, you know, um, if you need to go back to work at some point, although I have not done that since 2019. Um, but I was like, okay, you know, like buttons, I really, really want to do buttons and I really need to focus on this. And so the goal was that before I did me any more, anything else with music, I was going to make sure that buttons could run themselves, you know, because I would want to do buttons and then this other thing would come and get in the way and this other thing would come and get in the way. And I'm like, I just need to focus on buttons, but not really giving myself that permission to just focus on buttons. And like, so for the last two years, cause you know, um, when we moved to Salem and I got my button shop, I, you know, I had already been done with construction and I was being, I, registered as a care provider for my grandparents yeah. and was working with that. So I was working part-time for my grandparents and doing the button shop in July of last year. Um, you know, my grandfather was doing better and 
we found that was very apparent. I was being triggered um, immensely by, because there's still a lot of abuse from my grandmother. Okay. And so I kind of like wound up sinking into a depression hole because- Just a year ago. Yeah, because okay. I was just too close, yeah. you know, um, to, you know, there was even a point where like my grandmother was like, I realized, you know, if I was treating somebody else the way I've been treating you, they wouldn't want to work for me. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And it's a common thing to be a care provider for family. Sure. You're just too close to the situation. So now they have an excellent, a really great care provider that um, works really well for both of them. And so that release gave me for over a year now, buttons have been the only thing I've been doing as far as a job, you know. And because of that, I've been able to dive into the service work that I love so much more, like being able to work with Rock. I, I just got to do a party with Bridgeway Recovery, like all these different things. And my heart the whole time is like, if I just focus on buttons, the world is going to open up. I just know this, but I was always afraid, you know? And since I've been focusing on buttons, like I've been able to connect with my community. I've been able to get you know, find ways to manage my anxiety, manage my depression, manage all these things. And all along, I was like, buttons are good. Buttons help me connect with others. It gives me a reason to talk to people. It gives me all of these things. And, you know, it really makes my life fulfilled. And so I found that it gives me a way to provide a service to others and be of service to others in a very profound way. And um, to where it's like, okay, you know, and I can look back at times when like I was, I had time to focus on buttons, but not fully. But now that that's what I'm doing, I was like, okay, this, this is right. This is where I need to be. This is exactly what I need to be doing. And, um, it didn't even really strike home so much up until I just closed my shop last night, last week, the last day that I was open was the 19th. And the parents that came in and spoke to me, like I had parents just like, are you sure you're getting a new place or, you know, and I'm like, absolutely. Like, you know, I, I did not realize how impactful it was. Like I had, um, there's a young man who, when he first started coming to my shop was he's autistic and nonverbal. And his mom told me, she's like, no, he started talking. And I think it's because he wanted to go to your shop. And, you know, I told her about Radness and Sue's and she's like, I really hope you get this. I really hope you can do this because it's important and we will, we will be there and we will be back, you know, but he loves you and he loves your shop and mm -hmm. it's really important what you're doing. And I was just kind of blown away um, by the impact with not just the kids, but the parents too, but I had no idea, you know, like I know I have like a high level of autistic kids that do gravitate to the shop. Um, and, uh, but I just, I, I just didn't realize because I just kind of, some. I remember I was talking to uh, Travis. I think he works with Valor Mentoring. Um, I was speaking to him. Travis Youngs. Yes, I was speaking the first time I met with Travis Youngs. Um, he asked me what my like my focal point for success or like what my path to success was. I said, well, honestly, like I just kind of put my head down and work really hard. And when I pop my head up, something cool happens sometimes. <laughs> and, and that was like, that's exactly what's, what's happened. Like with the button shop, like, um, the, it's not really a retail store, you know, and, and it wasn't really intended to be like, I can, I've been making buttons out of my house for 10 years before I opened up the shop. 
the whole point of it was to be able to connect with people and to do this art and creation station to inspire art and just spread love. You know, I tell people spread love, make buttons. And they're like, what's that mean? I'm like, well, you spread love and you make buttons, you know, that's exactly what it means. And because I have like, it's just super fun and it's inspiring. And so seeing these kids come in that, you know, some, a lot of the autistic kids that I work with, you know, they'll come in and at first they're kind of wallflowers and they'll, or, you know, maybe they'll just like knock stuff on the floor and the parents are like, oh my God, I'm like, no, no, you're, you're fine. Like, just let them just be who they are. They're not hurting anything. And then, um, to watch these kids bloom, you know, really bloom and go from that to later on, you know, months later, now they're running the shop. Now they're bringing their friends. Now they're showing their friends all these things. And, you know, they're like, can I come behind the counter and grab these parts? I'm like, absolutely, you know? And so it's, it's really beautiful to see, you know, um, like I, I I don't really have the words for it, but it's, to me, it's the best Mm. to be able to provide a safe space to be able to provide this and kind of reflect back. Cause like for me, when I was little and living in a very dark place, um, buttons were a bright spot in my life, Mm. you know, like I couldn't mess it up. You know, I grew up feeling very worthless. I grew up feeling very unloved. I grew up feeling like I wasn't wanted and you know, like I wasn't, you know, like no 13 year old wants to have a child. Like that's, that is just not, I mean, even if they want kids, it's not like they're still a kid, you know, my grandmother didn't want the burden, you know, and, um, I was, it was very apparent to me that I and my sibling were a burden. Um, so when, you know, I got to make buttons of like, I'm not worthless. I can make something and I can make something and it's good and it takes less than a minute. And every time it's, it's, it's like this instant gratification of simplicity and creativity. And I made it, Mm. I made this and it's good. So it's like a core memory, like buttons are not a bad thing. And so because of that, like when I'm able to pass this on to other children, you know, especially in like, you know, like I say, I'm here for the young and the young at heart. And so there's adults that really enjoy it. And there's, you know, teens that really enjoy it, but for kids, especially because when you're working with the little, the press, um, there's a point where they're like, where to go? Because the press holds these parts. And then when they're like bewildered, like, is this magic? And I'm like, let me show you how it works, you know, and I'll let them feel the machine and see where it holds their parts. And mm. when they're really inquisitive about that. And, but just to see that spark the very first time they make their button and the way their eyes light up. And I'm like, here we go. That's it. Here we go. Yes, you can. You can do anything. Mm. You know, so it's like people ask me what my why is. It's like, I want, I don't want anybody to question if they matter. I don't want anyone to question if their ideas are good. I don't want anyone to question if they're worthy or if they're loved. And that, that is why I do what I do. And your, your bud shop is, it's you interacting with kids who you once were when you were six years old. Yes. And we all matter. For yes. sure. Amen. Well, we're going to wrap up here in a moment, but I want to hear 
where Becca is today. So you closed down the shop last week. Yes. Where do we go from here? What is what is the next chapter of your life look like? So um, I am. I've already. Um, I've already registered the business name, and it is Radness and Sue's a Button Buddy Collective by Becca Makes Buttons. And what that is is so I've been in business for over twelve and a half years now. I have met so you know like buttons are my catalyst for connection. Um, I've been working with bands, businesses, causes, um, organizations, you know, all throughout twelve these twelve and a half years. I still have people with me who have been with me since the beginning, and so many amazing artists and causes and things and, and, you know, all these people, these are my button buddies. Like if you made a button with me, you're a button buddy. Like you belong, you're good, you're worthy, you're loved. Like we are all like button buddies, my friends. It's how I make friends. And so, um, for the button buddy collective, it's like, well, I have all these amazing people I've met and already like, I've already been doing all the service work with the shop as it exists. So with, and that's in a 316 square foot space that had no storage, you know, like I had a grief group that would meet twice a month and I have um, two recovery groups that would meet each four times a month after hours. So having Radness and Sue's, um, the Button Buddy Collective, the building I'm going after has 1500 square feet. So we can do a little cafe, we can have art demonstrations, and we can have the groups can run during business hours. There's like three rooms upstairs and all of these things with a little gift shop and all these things that I've already been doing on a very small scale, but for a larger scale and to be able to be more of a community hub with buttons as the base. Like there's a, there's a little outbuilding out back that's almost three times the size of my shop. So I can still have production but then also have this hub in the house. There's like a garden too. So all these elements of healing and inspiration and growing and all of this, um, that so Radness ensues, like, what are you going to make? You know, people have asked me like, Oh, you know, if you get really good at this business, you know, you can franchise it. So that's not my goal. Like I don't want to franchise. My goal is to plant seeds and inspire so many people that when they leave here, they go out into the world and they create their own magic. They're inspired to do their own thing, whatever that is, whatever, however they can be the best version of themselves that they can be. That's what I want them to go out and do. It's not to create a whole bunch of Becca's and a whole bunch of Becca makes buttons. I'm Becca, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm me. I am who I am, but you get to be exactly who you are. And you're a beautiful person, a beautiful creature, exactly as you are. So go out and do what your heart tells you to do, you know? And so that's the whole kind of premise behind Radness and Sue's. And the other aspect of it too is because I'm very much into mental health and uh, recovery and all that, that, you know, like I serve the special needs community. I serve the recovery community. I serve the youth community and their parents. And um, so the goal is to kind of also not kind of, but to kind of break down these walls of the stigma of mental health and what that looks like. So if you have, say, an art demonstration with maybe not everybody knows that the person doing the art demonstration is a play therapist and they do this and 
then you kind of get comfortable and you're coming around and you're taking these art classes with this this art therapist. And then this art therapist also is running a grief group. And maybe, you know, everyone experiences grief and loss at some point. It's just a normal part of the human condition. So after a while, you know, like, oh, well, you know, like I had a really good time making art with this person. Let's go, you know, I'm going to check out this grief group. Then, you know, maybe later on, you know, you're having a coffee or sandwich or something and you're just kind of hanging out. Maybe you're having a bad day and this person comes up to you and goes, you know, hey, are you okay? You're going to be more inclined to talk to them because you have this established relationship. You've already taken an art class. You've checked out their their group therapy sessions. So maybe when they offer you a one-on-one, you're more willing to go and get that help that you need. Mm. And like I've been in forced therapy since I was eight like I was actually part of the ACES program um, that developed through Kaiser Permanente in the 90s and stuff. Um, my sibling and I both were, which is for children who have adverse childhood experiences. Um, and so there's a lot of fear, you know, in getting help. There's a lot of stigma in going to get help. So the idea is to have this relationship already established that you're more willing to do this. So part of Radness and Sue's is also to have one or two on-site staff therapists that are just always there in grain of thing. They can have their own sessions scheduled on certain days, but then also be available to the people who just come and visit and who are there every day so that there's someone who understands the situation, can de-escalate situations if, you know, if a kid's having a hard time, parents are having a hard time, and just have this this space that just mm-hmm. feels comfortable and kind of provides a way to get the help that people need that a lot of times we're afraid to get. I mean, you figure I'm 40 now. I was forced into therapy at eight. I stopped when I was 16 after my um, my last real suicide attempt um, that failed, gratefully. Thankfully. Um, so I, uh, and my therapist was just not a good fit for me. And I was like, I'm done. And then when I was 22, I had a a boss had asked me if I would please take advantage of this free eight session program that was offered when I was an aviation feeler. And I was really scared of therapy because of my experiences as a kid. And I went ahead and did it. And that was my first experience with EMDR therapy. And it worked tremendously. But then I didn't want to let go of alcohol. Hmm. So I was afraid and I and I stopped. And then, you know, I go back and then I got sober and then I started doing therapy again. But it was really during COVID that I really dove in and started working with the trauma, the trauma therapist that I've worked with. And it has been the last three, almost four years of my life have been the most healing, most impactful for actually being able to function and learning tools to keep me from just living in a cycle of depression. And I want to share that with others, but I also know from my own experience how hard it is to ask for that help, yeah. how hard it is to trust that that help is actually going to help. Right. And so the radness ensues is a culmination of all my experiences in wanting to spread love and kindness and healing in a way where it's um, more along the lines of self-help you know, like you're not forced, yeah. but if you want it, it's here, Yeah. you know, and you're loved as you are, you're welcome as you are. So mm-hmm. if you want it, here you go. And that's kind of, um, 
that's, that's the premise behind it. And, you know, I'm really, I'm really grateful for, for my community. I'm really grateful for everything that's kind of led me to this point, but I really feel like this is exactly where I need to be. If somebody wants to reach out and really hear more about this, Becca, how do, how do they get a hold of you to, to learn more, hear more? Because there are people and kids that need to be involved. Yes. Um, how do they get a hold of you? So Becca makes buttons, and that's B E C K A. So it's Becky with a with an with an A, you know, um, which also is a throwback to my childhood, you know, because I grew up being called Becky, um, but I prefer Becca. So it's it's B E C K A M M A K E S B U T T O N S dot com. Um, it'll take you, you go there, there's a pop-up that'll take you to the GoFundMe so you can learn more about Radness and Sue's. There's a video. If you go to GoFundMe, you can, um, type in Radness apparently, and it'll pop right up. Um, and then also there's going to be, uh, Michelle Ashley Custom Cakes and Mint Children's Boutique is throwing a benefit for Radness and Sue's on the 9th from 11 to 3 at 45th Parallel. So September 9th. Yeah. Okay. Coming up here in a week or so. Yeah. And uh, Michelle Ashley has already, um, she started a raffle. So she's raffling off a two-tiered custom cake. It's a $5 buy-in or um, uh, five tickets for $20. Okay. Um, So that's already going on right now. And um, so that's to win a a cake and all the proceeds she's donating to Radness and Sue's. Mm -hmm. And I am in the process of working with people to make it a nonprofit as well. So there's, there's a lot. I mean, this is honestly probably barely a drop in the bucket. Um, but still greatly appreciated. But I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk with anybody. I'm happy to share with anybody. My life is an open book. You're an open book for sure. You're very transparent. Well, Hey, I appreciate you being on here today. And we're going to wrap up, but is take a minute. Is there any last things that you wanted to share that's on your heart that maybe we just didn't get to cover? Any way just to wrap up uh, with a beautiful ribbon on top? So if nobody, like, if you take nothing else away from any experience with me, the one thing I want people to understand more than anything is you are worthy, you are loved, you are capable of anything, like anything you can you know you are worthy and you are loved exactly as you are Mm. that is so important and something that enough of us don't get to hear you matter and you are worth it and i guess for the final when i first considered getting sober i had a friend um that i spoke with And he had told me something that his sponsor had told him and that his life is so much more beautiful when you're all the way in it. Mm. After being sober for almost 11 years, I could never predict that this would be my life today. What a blessing. So you, you know, life is so much better when you are all the way in it. So give yourself the chance, love yourself enough to know believe it trust it Hmm. but you matter you're very encouraging um, even to me Um, but I know there's a lot of families and kids out there that need this yes so thanks for your 
sorry you had to go through what you had to go through, but the good news is that what you've learned is we all matter and you want to give back to this community exactly what you needed as a little as a little girl as well. Absolutely. I said if I was going to move back home, you know, I was going to do everything I could to make my contribution. You know, I was going to do everything I could to be of service. And that's all I've done the last two years since I've been home is plug in to anything and everything I could to help. Just help. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks, Becca. appreciate you being here this week. Thank you for all the listeners each week that listen. I do pray that you are encouraged by this and that you'll plug into what Becca's doing. Be a supporter. Go, go find her website. You know, pray for her, give to her, however you feel led. And uh, let's change this community one family at a time. Thank you, buddy. Thanks again for being here this week. We'll see you next week.